by 2042, more than 50% of the U.S. population will have skin of color. And this means that all dermatologists must be capable and comfortable diagnosing, treating, and dispensing prevention advice for skin conditions across the spectrum of skin tones. In part three of a three-part podcast series on dermatologic issues facing patients with darker skin tones, Dr. Andrew Alexis, a dermatologist from New York City and the president of the Skin of Color Society, Dr. Corey Hartman, a dermatologist in Birmingham, Alabama, and Janine Luke, a dermatologist in Loma Linda, California, discuss the growing use of lasers in energy-based devices in patients with richly pigmented skin. I'm Dr. Andrew Alexis. I am here representing the Skin of Color Society. It's my privilege to be the president this year and to be with two of my leading colleagues in dermatology and members of the society, Drs. Janine Luke and Corey Hartman. And today we're going to be talking about a very relevant and hot topic in skin of color, and that's the use of lasers and energy-based devices in patients with richly pigmented skin. We know historically devices have been associated with higher risks of complications in our patients with skin of color, so much so that 20 years ago and beyond, many of the devices were not considered uh, suitable for some of the higher skin phototypes that we treat. Uh, thankfully, there have been a number of developments over the years, and uh, so it's a pleasure to be with two experts in, in this area, and I'd love to hear their uh, uh, personal approaches and, and practical tips for performing lasers and energy-based device therapies uh, safely in skin of color. So why don't we start with Dr. Hartman. Um, can you give us a little background of some of the most common lasers and energy-based devices you perform in your office and your patients with skin of color? And what are the approaches to get those safe and uh, optimal outcomes? Yeah, so this is a focus of my practice. I'm in private practice in Birmingham, Alabama. We have a very multicultural practice staff and we also have a multicultural device offering when it comes to the services that we can provide to our patients. Like you said, 20 years ago when I was a resident, there, were, there was maybe one device that could be safely used on patients with melanated skin. And that was a brand new one. It was the NDAG laser for hair removal, which still is the gold standard for hair removal. But we've come so far and there's so many other devices from resurfacing devices to radio frequency, to um, devices that target the sebaceous gland, I'm sorry, the oil gland in, um, in acne therapy. So there's so many devices now that are safe. The trick with all of these procedures that we do is that we are creating micro injuries and micro injuries are associated sometimes with heat. This heat needs to be controlled so that we are in, always um, totally in control of what we're doing so that we know exactly when to stop to differentiate between a good outcome and a bad outcome. That is um, paramount um, in successful treatment, and it really does derive from a few different characteristics. So patient selection, device selection, and then the operator. And all these things go into a successful treatment. And these are things that 
we take very seriously. We don't take patients that serve, you know, surface uh, value. We don't just look at them. We really get into um, a discussion about their ethnic and cultural backgrounds because we know that phenotypically we can present with, you know, one way, but there's so much mixing and miscegenation in America that it really behooves you to get to the root of it so that you're not surprised by pigment that may be lying beneath the surface that you aren't necessarily aware of when you first meet the patient. So those are all things that we do. And then we also have very rigorous training in our office for any devices that are delegated so that we're never putting ourselves at risk for bad outcomes. Um, I have been like, fortunate or unfortunate enough to serve as a medical expert for several um, bad outcomes in um, patients who were served by those who did not have the knowledge um, necessary to have successful outcomes. So we're well aware of those things as well. And we just wanna offer patients, you know, the best treatments that can get them the results that they're looking for. Thank you, Dr. Hartman. And before I ask Dr. Luke, I'd love to hear what are your top three devices or procedures? for your patients with skin of color? Absolutely, so the NDAG laser for hair removal is still um, wildly popular. We had, that was the first device that I purchased when I was a, um, a new practice owner and that machine, we ran it into the ground and gave up after 10 years and you know what we did? Replaced it with the newer version and it's still going just as strong. I would say that our second device that we use probably most frequently for pigment is our Pico second um, laser, which targets pigment. It was originally indicated strictly for tattoos, but tattoos are just pigment depositions of different hues in the skin. So I started thinking, well, why can't we try this for you know melasma and other hyperpigmentation uh, where there's also pigment that's been deposited in an unwanted area in the skin. And then sure enough, two or three years later, the company came out with that actual indication after doing the studies for those indications as well. And then radio frequency has become a, another crown jewel in our, our armamentarium of products because it can be used safely in all skin types. It delivers heat, but in a very precise manner to stimulate collagen to help our skin to stay firm and tight and to prevent the crinkles and wrinkles that can develop even in brown skin. So I would say those are the top three um, that we use in our practice, but we have a wide array of lasers, probably about 15 that we um, safely and competently use in patients of all skin types. Thank you. So Dr. Luke, I'd like to ask you the same question. What are your yes. top procedures? So and it's not my favorite procedure, but just like Corey mentioned, laser hair removal is still like number one. You know, patients come in, a lot of patients of pseudofolliculitis barvae, they've got a lot of hyperpigmentation. It's just amazing how well we can clear that up. Um, not only just in the face, but in the groin. Patients are so happy with this treatment. Um, you know, depending on how many areas or which where we're doing, because they often want to do everywhere. That's where I say it's not my favorite treatment, but we definitely get excellent results with it. So I, that would have to be my top hands down. Um, second is the uh, non-ablative laser that we have. I treat a lot of younger patients with acne scarring. 
And um, I know that we did some of those earlier studies. Um, what Dr. The Luke, just for clarification, do you mean non-ablative fractional? Just non-ablative fractional, okay. exactly. Um, I treat a lot of acne um, scarring with this. Um, we did a lot of the early fraxel studies for skin of color in particular. And so um, that has been a go-to for over a decade for me. Um, and then some of the newer things that, um, you know, actually aren't, don't have melanin as a target, you know, we do a lot of like body sculpting, cryolipolysis, we do some tightening with um, parallel beam ultrasound. So those types of technologies that don't really have melanin as a target have also been very successful in my practice as well. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Well, then this begs the question, what procedures or what devices would you say are no-fly zones, not uh, considered safe for patients with skin phototypes five and six, let's say. I, I think IPL, intense pulse light and broadband light are not indicated and should never be used in patients with um, you know, melanated skin. Fortunately, these devices are really geared toward that brown and red discoloration that comes from chronic photo damage. And we don't necessarily see that very often. So, you know, some of the most damaging, disfiguring, horrendous cases that I've been involved in from a medical legal standpoint involve these devices. And it can be devastating. You can strip way too much pigment out. You can leave patients um, just, just dramatically altered by using these, these devices. I think that these are the ones that pretty much everybody should know not to use. Um, and particularly understanding that there's usually not even going to be a need for them um, makes it a slam dunk when it comes to um, court cases. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think what I would add to is that um, Corey and I mentioned laser hair removal, um, and I'm talking about with the NDAG 1064. So people who are trying to use shorter wavelengths, different devices, I think they should tread very carefully. Um, and similarly, you know, we talked about fractional non-ablative. I think they should also tread very carefully with fractional ablative technologies as well. We are getting some newer technology where we can do ablative, you know, resurfacing. But like I said, I would tread very carefully and then not use some of the older traditional devices. Experts agree that taking certain pre- and post-treatment precautions can help maximize the safety of energy-based devices in patients with darker skin types. Another burning question is, and pardon the pun, I guess that was a terrible uh, segue, but um, another question that I've, I'm sure is on a lot of people's mind is, are there certain pre- and post-precautions that you like to use that you would recommend that we all use? for our patients with higher skin phototypes when we're using a laser energy-based device, for example, pre-treatment with hydroquinone or other agents. Uh, could you speak to that? Why don't we start with you, Corey? Yeah, I, this is something that I was way more intent about earlier in my career as I was developing my practice and really honing my skill. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not as stringent about it because I have such a firm grasp on how these devices work and, um, you know, the parameters that I'm comfortable with treating myself or delegating to others. But I will say that 
most of these conditions that we're treating, if you're treating pigment, you're probably going to be on hydroquinone as part of, or, or some other skin lightening or evening topical therapy regardless. So it's always going to be a part of the equation. Um, and then, you know, there are certain considerations like pre prepping them for what they need to prepare for after as far as traveling and sun precautions and other topical agents that can leave their skin more susceptible to us being less able to control that that damage that we talked about before those controlled injuries like retinoids and educating them about products that they should avoid or stop using in run up and then the ones that they need to lay off for a little bit longer during the post um, procedure period as well. Did yeah, you? completely agree. Um, I used to do a lot of like pre-treatment and test spots and things like that when I when I originally started my practice. Now, especially hair laser, I don't need to do any pre-treatment or any test spots um, unless they also have pseudofolliculitis or some post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that's associated with the hair. Um, I do tell them to stop any retinoids, like my patients who I'm treating for acne scarring with the laser. I do have them stop that, you know, five to seven days before we do any laser treatment. Um, and then like Corey mentioned, it's the aftercare, like really making sure that they are protecting their skin, that they're using, you know, dental cleansers, moisturizers, um, that they're not going back to their actives until their skin goes back to normal. I think that's very crucial to having a good and optimal outcome as well. Great, very useful. Now, if you are going to use a bleaching agent like hydroquinone as a pretreatment, are there certain instances where you will be more likely to do that? Uh, and if so, what concentration, which formulation, how long, when do they start it? What are your thoughts on that, Corey? Yes, yeah, so I have really moved away. This might be a controversial topic, but I've really moved away from Kligman's formulation, which the dermatologists in the audience will understand is that combination of retinol, hydroquinone, and steroids. I just don't find that it gives a very natural looking lightening. I tell patients it can crudely lighten your skin, but you have to be so specific about it that it's not sometimes not worth it. Not only that, but since we've started, since I've been in dermatology, there's so many other compounds and active ingredients that can deliver more natural looking results that I moved more in the realm of cysteamine and transemic acid and lotus sprout extract and some of these newer products that um, are just gentler on the skin, provide a more natural, even looking skin tone as a result. So um, I may be in the minority on that, but I tend to go to those products more frequently. Um, there's always going to be a role for hydroquinone, but in my practice, in my hands, that role has been diminished. I don't use hydroquinone in as high concentrations all the time, and I definitely don't use it for as long as I did um, in the past. And, um, you know, we get great outcomes without them. There are a lot of head-to-head -head studies that show that a lot of these newer products are just as efficacious, if not better than some of the older formulations of hydroquinone, particularly in compound. Janine, your thoughts? Yeah, so a very similar approach, although um, I think it slightly varies in that um, I still do use um, hydroquinone, triple combinations, things of that nature. But again, I'm looking at the patient in front of me. So if there are very clearly defined 
patches of hyperpigmentation or dark spots that they can very precisely apply hydroquinone. I still have that as a useful part of our treatment approach. We do take very frequent breaks, just like Corey was mentioning. And then the good news is, is now that we have all these alternatives, we can you know have them use all these other products. I am a fan of cysteamine as well. They can use that in their break. Or I have patients sometimes who want to jumpstart on things. So if that's the case, we'll start with the hydroquinone. The cysteamine can take a while to start working. And so I find that patients who are really eager to get some results, we will start with that and then um, transition over to some of these other um, topical products. I do use, um, you know, topical tranexamic acid. I also have patients, particularly my melasma patients. You were asking about when I do pre-treat. I usually pre-treat in melasma patients. Um, and usually if we're going to do like a chemical peel or something like that, we'll kind of see how far they get with the topical um, prescription. And then we start peeling. Again, if people are super eager, we may peel, do one peel first, then do the prescription um, once their skin go, goes back to normal and then have them come back and reassess. I think the beauty is that there is this constant search for hydroquinone alternatives. So it works well for us and it, it allows us to provide our patients with lots of different options. I love that a lot of these aren't as irritating as hydroquinone especially the combination formulations, and that they can be used all over the face and for longer periods of time. Melasma predominantly occurs in people with darker skin types, and 90% are women, according to the Skin of Color Society. Latin America, Asia, Middle East, and Northern Africa are areas with a higher prevalence of melasma, and patients with brown skin, particularly in areas of high sun exposure, are especially susceptible to developing melasma. All right. Well, one last question that I'm sure is, is also on people's mind, and that is when it comes to melasma, we've heard from Corey, he likes the picosecond laser for treating hyperpigmentation, including melasma. Is that true? Uh, Corey, I don't want to misquote you. Absolutely. Okay. So now, Janine, do you think there's a role for lasers and energy-based devices for treating melasma in your practice? And if so, which ones do you use? So it's not my favorite thing to do for, um, for melasma. I tend to do, like I was mentioning, more medical management, and I kind of consider the cosmetics to be an adjunctive. And I try not to have them spend a whole lot of money because it's chronic. So no matter what we do, it may come back. So I kind of just get them to buy into the fact that this is chronic. We can certainly treat it. Um, I try not to have them spend a whole lot of money. I know there's a lot of evidence for the 1927 nanometer. Um, so if I had to pick a laser device, I would pick that one. And then I like to do a lot of chemical peels, microneedling, PRP, things of that nature for my melasma patients. And then, of course, oral tranexamic acid if they don't have any contraindications. Okay, well, thank you, both of you, for your wonderful pearls. Really a pleasure to sit with you and hear your expert approaches to treating uh, patients with skin of color with lasers and energy-based devices. And I hope to be able to sit down with you again and talk about some other exciting topics. Thank you all for tuning in. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Practical Dermatology, the podcast. The final in our series on dermatologic issues facing patients with darker skin types in conjunction with the Skin of Color Society.